All right, let's just get started. Is everyone familiar with the cycle of violence is when we say the term cycle of violence? It's, uh, it's usually used in the context of places like the Middle East, where there are so many generations of people hurting people that it's impossible to unwind who's actually at fault and, and how to fix the problem. Because almost every single person over there has the right to try and hurt the other side because so much damage has been done back and forth that we, we call that the cycle of violence. As long as we respond to violence with violence, there is no ending it. Well, my family is not the Middle East, but we totally experience the cycle of violence on a regular occasion. It usually goes like this from this week. Obi enters my room uh, looking both adorable and oppressed and um, says, Dad, Jude took my toy for no reason. And, you know, he looks so cute. My injustice alarm goes off and I immediately drop into grumpy dad mode. I call for Jude. Jude Isaiah, get in here. And he comes in. I engage. Why'd you take Obi's toy? Jude immediately fires back. I had it first. Mom asked me to go downstairs and get something, so I put it down. When I came back, he was playing with it. That wasn't fair because I was just doing what Mom told me to do. So I looked back at Obi, and that turd is staring at the floor now. And, and I said, Obi, did you take his toy? He says, I had it last night, and Mom said I could play with it when I got up. <laughs> so I looked back at Jude, and that turd is now staring at the floor. And he says, you can't do that. It starts over every day. And so, you know, by this point, I basically do the dad thing and I go, just go play and be nice to each other. And, of course, they turn and walk out and I hear them as they're walking down the hall, give me the toy. No, I had it first. And I just go, ah, oh, job well done. I did, I did my dad duty. <laughs> this is the fourth week of our Saint series. And we're going to talk a little bit tonight about polarizing debates, the debates that tear us in half. We've learned about Brennan Manning and his discovery of grace our first week. We talked about the connected life of Rosa Parks, how her kindness literally changed the world. And then last week, Brent talked to us about Peter and how God was able to use an ordinary fisherman who had the tendency to say and do the wrong thing at the wrong times. And with that ordinary nobody, build a church. And this week, I'd like to introduce you to St. Anthony, the hermit. St. Anthony, also known um, in history as Anthony the Great or Anthony of Egypt. He was born in Egypt in 251. He was born a wealthy land, to a wealthy landowning Christian family. Uh, when he was about 20, both his parents died unexpectedly. And he was left in control of all their wealth and his younger sister. And while reading the scripture, uh, he read the exhortation from Matthew 19.21. If you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. So Anthony did exactly that. He gave the care of his sister into uh, this group of women that was kind of the early predecessors to the nuns. And uh, he gave away a lot of the family land to neighbors who were in need, sold the rest, and gave it to the poor. And he moved to the outskirts of his town and lived basically kind of in the wilderness area around his town, uh, doing small um, handyman jobs, uh, begging, and kind of this early, early itinerant street preacher. Just kind of talked to people about the gospel. He ate very plain food, ate very little actually, usually one meal a day, ate very little, which uh, is hard to believe because I think he lived to be like 94, which back then is unheard of in 251. So he basically created this life in the wilderness on the outskirts 
of his town. He did that for about 15 years, working odd jobs, begging, street preaching. Anthony decided to abandon the world of men completely after this and moved into the desert. And this move is kind of what sets Anthony apart. There was other aesthetics in this day, but Anthony was kind of the first one to move literally into the desert. And it's, he's the one where we kind of get the name Desert Fathers. I don't know if you've ever heard that term for kind of the early contemplatives, the Desert Fathers. We have uh, books called the Sayings of the Desert Fathers. They're almost like Proverbs and things. But he was the first one to actually move into the desert. Not the first aesthetic, but the first kind of desert aesthetic. This led to basically two different branches of Christianity that, that kind of spawned from the way Anthony lived his life. The first was what we would call the monastics. He's, he's considered the father of monasticism. So monks and nuns and the people who set, try to separate themselves completely from culture and from life to live a life devoted um, to God. These are people who uh, believe that spending time with God in the presence of God and seeking after God through things like prayer and meditation um, and silence uh, is more preferable to trying to parse out you know, the theology, what's the best Greek version of this Hebrew word. And, you know, so when a lot of the church is getting really into the theology and the philosophy of the faith, the aesthetics, the monastics are the ones saying, you know, I'll let you guys figure that out. I'm just going to go be with God. I'm not going to try to hash out all the, the, you know, how this ties into that and works with that. I'm just going to be with God. And so he kind of started that early monastic tradition. He also started the people that kind of go back to the say those people who do try to do exactly what the scripture says. The true fundamentalist that, that, you know, there's a, there's an old saying that pragmatism is the enemy of virtue. So anytime you have a virtue, anytime you're like, you know, I believe this was like, well, how are you going to do this? And you got to get pragmatic and go, okay, well, and so every time you try to take a stand for virtue, pragmatism steps in and you have to go, well, but yeah, I still have to live. You know, I still have to, you know, pay my bills. I still have to do things. I can't just move out in the wilderness. Well, Anthony is one of those people that was like, no, virtue is virtue. And it does not uh, bow to pragmatism. So Anthony, uh, when he moves out to the desert, he, uh, he became kind of an early monk. Here's what makes Anthony different. Here's what I think Anthony has to say to us almost 2,000 years later, 1,700 years later. Anthony lived in really complex times, really divided, torn times. The Roman Empire, I got to nerd out just a little bit so you can get the background. I'm going to try not to get um, too dry and deep. But the Roman Empire was... About was kind of in the process of crumbling. Um, they, had, were, they had just recently kind of switched from a republic to an empire. And they didn't hold the empire part together for long. And a lot of people in the government blamed Christianity. They kind of believed that uh, Rome had Roman gods, and uh, the only way to get the glory of Rome back was to go back to serving the Roman gods. Like the reason Rome was crumbling was because nobody was worshiping their gods anymore. And so they mainly blamed Christianity for that. So many Romans were turning to Christianity that they were like, that is why our great nation is dying. We're no longer serving our gods. And so they turned to persecuting Christians. Like if we can just get this kind of Christian idea out of our, our country, our nation, we'll be able to get the, the blessing of our gods back. And so they turned to persecution. And the persecution got really ugly. The Diocletian persecution was the worst. That was where it was... Uh, literally, so before then, you were allowed to pick on Christians, but it wasn't necessarily state mandated. Diocletius mandated it. Now, it was almost your Roman duty to pick on Christians. And, uh, they almost wiped out Christianity right around this time, right around 250, 270. And what happened was, every time a persecution would kind of lift, 
the Christians would pick on each other for how they handled the persecution. It was kind of ridiculous. So there was one persecution where they were trying to round up all the Christian literature, all the books, Bibles. They weren't really Bibles yet. They were just letters and trying to round them up. And some people were like, as, as important as this is, now we're dying for. So they gave them up. And then when the persecution lifted, some of the Christians were like, I can't believe you gave our books to them. You're no longer a Christian. And they were trying to kick each other out of the church based on how they had handled the persecution before it. It was, it was ugly. And this is kind of the, the world that Anthony lived in, kind of where he found himself was in this ridiculous tension. Uh, so even though the church held up well under persecution, they didn't do well once it lifted because then they immediately started picking on each other. This is kind of the world that Anthony escaped to the wilderness. He kind of left this tension and this uh, this uh, ugly division that was starting to happen. Then around 300, Constantine, the emperor, becomes a Christian. Uh, actually became a Christian just before he became the emperor. And he lifted the persecution on Christians. No longer allowed to pick on Christians. This is maybe 15 years before he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. But at this point, he just lifts the persecution. So something unique happens here for the very first time. All the Christian leaders were able to get together and try to figure out what they believed. Because up till then, you didn't dare put ten bishops all in the same room. Because then, one swipe of the sword, and you've knocked out all the leadership of the church. So the, the church wasn't allowed to have councils, because they didn't dare risk bringing their leaders together. So as soon as the persecution is lifted, they're able to get everybody together and say, uh, okay, let's have a council and see what we believe. And if you can imagine... So imagine if we took the most marginalized, um, abused people in our culture and we said, okay, to the White House, you now get to run the show. It, it was ugly. So now you have people, immediately these people go from no power at all to steering the ship. And of course, everybody's vying for power. If you read the historical accounts of the first major council, the bishops brought soldiers with them, like bodyguards. Like they went in with a full like power, you know, infrastructure to basically get their theology to the top. And uh, and it's it's a pretty ugly account of how some of those early ones went. Well, Anthony recognized this. He saw this division. The, there was a fight between Athanasius and Arius. Anybody who's paying attention have not looked at my notes for several minutes. Going to be ugly when I do. Just just so you know. Um, Athanasius and Arius were kind of the, the better trying to figure out the nature of Christ. One said he was a man on whom God bestowed divinity. One said he was always divine. And so they're kind of duking it out. And they're trying to pull Anthony in because Anthony, for some weird reason, had drawn a following. That was actually why he left the wilderness around his hometown and went to the desert because he felt himself gaining power. He had so many people coming to him for wisdom and for uh, advice about the scripture that he started noticing, um, I have a, almost a political pull, and that terrified him. He knew that, that the cross and power did not go together. And so he split. He went to the wilderness. He actually hid in this um, abandoned Roman fort. And people started coming clear out to the desert, uh, like an hour out into the desert, and they would throw food over the wall to Anthony, and then they would just kind of tell him their issues, and he would throw wisdom and advice back over the wall. Um, for their problems. And so the, the world at this point, or at least Anthony's world, is completely divided, and Anthony 
doesn't want that. So he lived in a time when the church, and really his entire culture, was polarized, was binary. Everybody was splitting into two teams, one team or the other team. And out there in the wilderness is this crazy, and I don't just mean that metaphorically. I think Anthony might have been a little off. Uh, he had some visions that were out there to which you kind of want to say, dude, you got to eat more than that because funky things happen when you don't eat. And Athanasius, who's kind of the father of orthodoxy, the guy who kind of won the big debate about Christ, wrote about him. And even the fact that Athanasius would record it like it was okay, some of it, he had a vision of a centaur. He had like this conversation with a centaur. I was going to leave this out. But he had this conversation with a centaur that he felt was giving him some wisdom. And he, so then he had this debate with an angel. You know, now you got to remember, this is Rome. This is in the Roman Empire when that was a little more normal. If, if, so probably a little different than if I told you I saw a centaur. Then, <laughs> then it's bring on, bring on the meds. Cause, but it was a little more normal in, in Anthony's day uh, for something like that. But he was trying to decide if it was an angel. Uh, imitating a centaur, a real centaur, and, and Athanasius just recorded this like it was okay. But So I don't necessarily just say metaphorically crazy, but out in the wilderness is this crazy hermit who, despite being completely extreme and completely outside the culture, has people flocking to him, people recognizing this guy's not caught up in the power structures. This guy's not playing the games and so they wanted to know what he had to say. Eventually, Constantine catches wind of Anthony, that there's this guy that tons of people are flocking to. And Constantine sends a letter to Anthony inviting him to sit at the table. Come join the discussion. Come and, and help us to, to, to fight this out. And Constantine sends back a letter with one word response. See to it that you and your sons do not esteem this world, but the next. That was all he said, and he wouldn't engage. He pulled out. He wouldn't fight into it. And although I think he had some antisocial issues, I also believe he got this idea from Jesus. Jesus lived about 300 years before Anthony, and his culture was no less divided. Israel had been taken captive years before, and they had actually spent a time free. Um, the Maccabees had freed them, and they were kind of run their own show for a while. And then the Romans come in and reconquer them. And so the Romans... Uh, we're bringing in a new culture, what we call Hellenistic culture, Greco-Roman culture. They wanted to put up gymnasiums and put in Roman roads and, and bring all this Roman influence. And the, the Jews kind of split into two camps over this whole thing. You had the, the one camp who believed we should keep worshiping in the temple, stay Jews, but let's invite in some change. Let's get up with the times. Let's, let's progress and, uh, and, and be more like them so we can enjoy their wealth, enjoy their, the things they bring. We can be, you know, more with it. And the other side believed the only way to be a Jew was to, was to conserve the Torah, to, to stay Jewish, to resist all outside pressure and hang on to the, to the way God said things are supposed to be. Well, these two camps, the, the more liberal progressive camp are, were called the Sadducees and the more conservative uh, camp was called the Pharisees, and they were completely and totally divided. One side wanted to embrace change, the other side wanted to conserve the old ways. Um, and in steps this incredibly popular, charismatic rabbi, who uh, both sides 
immediately, when you read some of their conversations, like some of their later conversations are just, you know, mean. Like Jesus is saying mean things about them, they're saying mean things about them. But if you read some of their early conversations, it's combative, but when you, when you read them with the understanding that both sides really wanted Jesus, it changes the tone. They weren't necessarily like trying to shoot him down and, and, you know, this is a super popular guy. He has crowds of people coming to him. And so they were, they want to win him over. So they keep asking him these questions, these binary questions, A or B, yes or no, to get him to pick a side. They're, if they can just get him to determine a team, well, then they get to claim this, this, you know, very charismatic, popular preacher. So if I were to come to you and say, um, are you Republican or Democrat? And you went, I don't, uh, I don't affiliate. What's your next question? Are you pro-abortion or pro-choice? So if you're not going to pick a team, I'm going to pick one for you. I just need you to answer a question or two so that I can put you in a camp that, that fits for me. That's what they were doing. They, they knew he wasn't going to become a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but if they can just ask the right question, get him to engage the debate. If they can just get him to step in and, and choose a side, they get to claim him. Whose team are you on? And you know what Jesus usually did? He, he usually would take a question that they would give him and he would ask a new question. Say, ah, let me ask you a question. And he would, he would flip or, he would, or they would ask him a binary question. He would go, let me tell you a story. There's this guy on the road from Jericho to, you know, to, from Jerusalem to Jericho and some people attacked him and they would, he would tell a story or he would say, but you know what's more important? <laughs> You've heard it said. But I say, you know, he would, he would take these binary questions. He would like, I'm not, I'm not going to get in your debate. Let me ask you a different question, a more important question. One of my favorite such conversations, and this is on a more personal level. This one isn't quite as out in the public, but it's more personal. And this is going to be our scripture for this morning. Uh, comes in Luke uh, 4, or John 4, sorry. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. Now you guys remember last week when I, or a couple weeks when I showed you where uh, Samaria was in the middle of Galilee where Jesus was from and Judea down on the bottom. So he's in that trip between. He's going home. Everything's getting ugly in Judea. The, the Pharisees are turning on him and so he's cutting through to go back up home. So he's in that middle land that's not really either. Um, uh, near the field of Jacob where his, uh, he gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily uh, beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into a village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you knew the gift that God has for you and who is speaking to you, you would ask me if I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and the animal and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water that I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here and get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here in Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers worship the, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God's spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. This is a pretty famous conversation, Jesus and the woman at the well. And... Uh, Jesus winds, uh, winds up alone with this woman in public, which right there is, is kind of something rabbis didn't do. It's not really from the Torah. It's from the, um, from the Talmud, which is kind of the rabbinical commentary on the Torah. Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago, one of the jobs of a Torah, maybe last week, was to build a fence around the Torah where they would put up rules that would keep you from breaking Torah. Well, because it was, you know, they knew that adultery was a, was a sin. Rather than put the line there, they would say, you know, you probably shouldn't be alone with a woman. If you're alone in a room with a woman, it can lead to bad things. If you break that rule, um, you would still have time to, you know, leave the room and, and not break Torah. So that was one of the rules. You don't, you don't be alone with a woman. And uh, so the fact that Jesus is having this conversation is already, you know, a little questionable. But even more than that, she's a Samaritan. You can actually hear her shock. Um, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritan. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Like she gets it. She knows, you know, that uh, this isn't a normal conversation. But what I love the most about this whole conversation, this conversation is used for all kinds of things. Jesus talks about the nature of true worship, which is huge. And we, we draw a lot of our kind of theology from this. But what I love is the psychology of it. Because every single time Jesus tries to get real with this gal, she diverts. She, 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 she hides from it. Watch, I'm going to show you a couple of them. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Jesus is speaking very personally. I would give you living water. And here's what she diverts to. The nature of the well in history. Like, well, this well belongs to, to our father Jacob. Are you better than Jacob? How could you be better than one of our predecessors? And so Jesus takes it even deeper. Uh, she tries to turn the conversation away. So Jesus goes even deeper. She refuses to kind of admit her thirst. And so he says uh, she tries to divert with this talk about history and the nature of the well. And so Jesus goes to her husband. She evades again. I don't have a husband. Jesus persists. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with is not the husband. Now Jesus has her dead to rights, right? He's reading her mail like he's dead in her life. And, uh, and rather than be authentic, what does she do? Sir, you must be a prophet. And immediately. So tell me this. The Jews say we're supposed to worship here. The, the Samaritans say we're supposed to worship. Has anybody ever done that? Like somebody's 
getting into your life and you're like, you know what? Let's just talk theology. Let's do that. That's way less painful than what you're. Yeah. So she wants to get into an empty theological discussion about the nature of worship and the division between the Jews and the Samaritans. When Jesus is going, let's talk about your living arrangements. She deflects. She hides. If she can get him caught up in a debate, if she can get him caught up in an issue, she doesn't have to be real. So Jesus basically says, yeah, that debate's been hashed out. God wants you to worship in spirit and in truth. So how does she respond to that one? The woman said, you know, I know Messiah's coming. And when he gets here, you know, he'll tell us all things. Back to theology. This is the hot topic of the day. The most recent authors of scripture, the ones who were just a couple hundred years before this time, all wrote about the Son of Man, the Messiah that was coming. The prophets, um, those are fairly contemporary books considering. You know, the, the Torah at this point is 1,500 years old, but the prophets are only about three or 400 years old. So they're fairly contemporary books considering. And so there was the hot topics were all the Son of Man, the Messiah. So she diverts back to a theological concept of Messiah. She diverts again. And, it, and this just makes me wonder how many of our theological debates, how many of our political debates, how many of our debates in general are really just ways to keep from being real. If I can keep it generic, if I can talk about these big grand issues, maybe I don't have to get into my own junk. Maybe I don't have to talk about my own life and my own walk with God. What I love and what I honestly envy, because I am, I love a good theological debate. Like That's my wheelhouse. That's what I love to do. So what I envy about Jesus is how he doesn't get sucked in. He won't let himself get drawn in. It doesn't matter if it's Pharisees and Sadducees asking him questions in the marketplace or a woman at the well trying to keep him out of her backyard with theological discussions. Jesus won't be drawn in. He doesn't go, I mean, here's what I do when the woman goes, you know, hey, so the Jews say we should, oh man, what you don't understand is in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, like that, I'm gone. Like I forget all about her living arrangements and I'm, I'm well hooked into the, into the, the nerd out there. But Jesus doesn't do that. It doesn't matter if it's in the marketplace or alone at a well. Jesus doesn't get caught up in theological debates to keep from being authentic. Jesus cares about people more than platforms. The reason I chose Anthony to be one of our November saints, even though he was a little kooky, is because Anthony, in my opinion, is the patron saint of not getting caught up in messy debates that hurt people. It's kind of a long title, but hard to fit it on metal. But not getting caught up in messy debates that hurt people. And it may seem oxymoronic to think that Anthony is like a patron saint of people when he was the one who hid in the desert all by himself. But there was something interesting about him, no matter where he went. And it's kind of unfortunate because all the places he went and hid, there are now monasteries on those places, you know, full of people. Every single place that he stopped, there's now a monastery there of, of some sort. But... Every place that he went, people were drawn to him. As much as he tried to pull away, people recognized an authenticity in that. That when you sit down with Anthony, he looks at you and he looks into your eyes and he advises you. He gives you spiritual counsel. He, he asks what's going on in your world and he, he engages you on that level. <laughs> the irony is, 
if you buy the, the sayings of the desert father, everything is basically like, like, sounds like you're reading from Confucius. So they've taken all this great personal advice he gave and totally turned it into generic precepts. But Anthony was extremely personal. They brought food to him. He gave them himself. The people were exhausted by the polarizing debates. And it was refreshing to be a man that stepped outside of that. Which means the pressures and tensions of that culture must have been pretty bad. If people were willing to, if going out into the brutal desert was preferable to staying in the heat of the debate, you know it had to be pretty bad. So how do we respond to this? The application of this one's pretty obvious, right? I believe our world is living in debate exhaustion. Political debates, denominational debates, theological debates, ethical debates, debates about how you raise your kids, debates about whether you use medicine or herbs, debates about how you eat and diet. Like, we will fight over anything. Anything. Our world is polarized, and it can, it can feel like we literally have no option other than to pick a side. I don't believe this is true. In fact, I believe there's a long thread of people in the, in, the, in the church who have resisted that temptation to overgeneralize other humans into generic platform points. I believe choosing sides is inherently dangerous. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis that I think pretty much nails our society. The devil always sends errors in the world, into the world in pairs. Pairs of opposites. He relies on your extra dislike for one error to draw you gradually to the opposite one. Anybody ever felt that? How many of you have not voted for a candidate but against one? Come on. Yeah, all of us. Like, I do not like this person, but I really hate that person. Like, most of us barely even know what we stand for anymore. All we know is what we stand against. We allow our distaste for one thing to draw us into a camp that we don't really necessarily even agree with. This is why I love Anthony. Anthony saw the debates. He saw the division. He saw the polarizing pole. And he stepped outside of it. He said, I won't do it. He spent time with real people, not platform points. From the moment we started Open Table, one of the most common questions I've gotten is, how would you handle it if blank type of person came to the church? If this type of person came, what would you do? So do it right now. Form it in your, the person you're most curious about, form it in your head. Ask that question, right? Get that question from your head. How would Chris handle it if this type of person came to the church? Because I'm going to answer that question right now. So get it locked in. Whatever you're most curious. I wonder how he would do it if this type of person. The answer is, I have no idea. I have, I, do, I have no clue. And that's on purpose. I don't think when Jesus met the woman on the well, he turned to the chapter of speaking to a woman alone at a well if she's a Samaritan and read from a script. And I don't want to do that. I don't ever want to treat people like, like I have a preloaded response for what I do if that kind of person walks in. That would be a horrible thing. I have no clue. Hopefully I would introduce myself. And say, hello, nice to meet you. 
plan to hear people's stories, find out what's going on in their lives, move forward from there. That's as far as my planning goes. So how about you? Are you engaging real people or still confronting generalities and programs and platforms? You know what I've found? Real people are messier. It's way more painful, way more complicated. It is just easier to stay generic. And if you weren't called to be like Jesus and imitate Jesus and follow Jesus, I would say stick to the platforms. They're cleaner. If you can just say, I don't like this kind of person, that's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. We did a lot of work with homeless people. I know I talk about it quite a while. We spent about four or five years working with homeless people. And it was a lot easier to talk about homelessness before I had to talk about Mike and Greg and Ed and, and Steve and Bill. I have names now. I can't just talk generically about homelessness and, and what they should do. I have stories now that I can't get away from. I know I've talked about my story with Greg before, but it broke me. I'm talking to this guy who I've never seen him sober. He's a mess. Every time he comes to church, he's drunk. And he's sitting in the front of church one week, and it's uh, he had this big, deep, booming voice that's just like reverberated through the whole place. He's sitting in the front row, and the pastor says something in his sermon. He goes, I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> it's, it's like louder than the pastor. And, and I was kind of standing up in the back, and so I went up, and I, I said, Greg, let's go outside and get a cigarette, man. I used to carry cigarettes because it helped calm everybody down. And so he could tell, he was agitated. He could tell I was asking to leave. And so he came out and, and I lit a cigarette and gave him a cigarette. And he's mad and you know, we're outside. It's cold. And I look up and he's got tears coming down his face. And he starts to tell me a story, which he, from what I understand, he'd never done before. It was just something different this night. Nobody really knew Greg's story. And years before, Greg was driving home after a party, and he drove home drunk. Made a stupid decision. At this point, he had a job. He was a construction worker. He had a motorcycle, a boat, and a truck. Had the whole works. And he hit a family. And he watched a 12-year-old girl's head hit his windshield and bounce over and die on the pavement behind him. And he said, every time I close my eyes, I still see her hit that windshield. And he goes, other than the time I spent in prison, I haven't spent a day sober since. I said, that could be me. Up until that point, I was helping homeless people because that's what Jesus would do, but I never saw myself in them. I never thought I could, I could be there. Like, I felt different. I felt separated. And when I heard Greg's story, he made a stupid decision. It wasn't necessarily evil. It wasn't necessarily, vind- like, mean. He just made a dumb decision. He paid for it with the rest of his life. And he goes, I can't get sober because when I do, I see your face. <laughs> Something in me in that moment changed. I can't talk about those people anymore because I know I could be those people. I know I could make a stupid decision. So how can I talk about homelessness? How can I, how can I categorize them into a platform point when I know Greg? People are a mess. And when you engage them, it messes up your thinking. 
It's, it's, it is messy. So if it weren't for Jesus, I'd say don't do that. Stay away from it. Because it'll, it'll, it'll rock your world. But we don't have that luxury. We're going into Advent. Next week's our first week of Advent. Advent, by definition, is a devout and joyful separation and preparation for the coming of Christ. It's the season where we, we look back at his coming and we celebrate the Christmas part of Advent. And then we also kind of look forward to the day when he's going to come and make things right and, and fix his broken world. But it's also the season when we recognize the many ways that Jesus arrives and shows up in our world and our story. Conversations like my conversation with Greg, where Jesus kind of breaks in and says, I'm not going to allow you to hold this one anymore. So Advent is a season when we just kind of quietly wait for Jesus' arrival while we celebrate his arrival. So first I ask, in response to this message, join us in the day crescendo. That's what we call our, our movement toward Advent. We quiet our hearts. When the rest of the world is ramping up and getting crazier and more chaotic, we kind of try to be countercultural. And at least in our own hearts, we act like Anthony and we say, I'm not going to get swept up. I'm going to be, I'm going to be at peace. I'm going to, I'm going to wait quietly for the coming of Jesus, for the arrival of Jesus. So when the world is getting more and more stressed out all in the name of having a Merry Christmas, we want to go the other direction. We want to hide in the desert a little. So I challenge you for the next month of Advent, find some quiet time, maybe 30 minutes a day, just set aside to be quiet. You don't have to do a Bible study. You don't have to read a bunch of scripture. You don't have to do anything. Just try to be quiet. That's a challenge. It is, it is hard to, to, to parse out some time to be quiet. I challenge you to do our Advent devotional. We're going to put that out. Read it. Try to, I always put, we always put some challenges in there. My wife's helped me write it this, this week or this, this year. We put some challenges in there. Try and do the challenges. Try and do something to stay out of the chaos. If you want to be even more extreme, turn off the news for one month. Stay off Fox and CNN. Just shut them down. Hide in the desert for one month and see how it changes your world. Some of you just got itchy. I saw it happen. Like, to disconnect for a month. That's... The second way I'd love to respond to this is for this Advent season, engage some real people. Have lunch with somebody. Look somebody in the eyes and sit down and talk. Tell them about your life. Ask a challenging question. My son called me yesterday and, and said, uh, I need you to tell me if this was too, too much. Like, I was working with this guy and I knew he was an alcoholic. Someone had told me and I've seen enough evidence in my life, so I just asked him about it. What's your plan with drinking? And he goes, was that too deep? And I was like, dude, 30 minutes ago I just finished this sermon. No, that was not too deep. Like, dig in. Like, ask the hard questions. Get in there. Like, and it's messy. It's messy. 
When someone asks you, how are you, I dare you to give them an honest answer. We've had this happen. It's, it, I'm going to stand in the, in the checkout at Sam's, and I don't know what it is, but I'll, somebody will go, how are you doing? And they're like, good, how are you? And just, people will just start crying, like, oh, I'm a mess of a... And usually I don't even think about it. I'm just like, like, how are you doing? And they'll, like, start talking. And, you know, you know, I, was, I just cheated on my boyfriend, and I don't even know how to tell him about it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, that's not what I wanted. And Esther's always like, that doesn't happen to me. No one does that to me. I don't. But ask real questions. Give real answers. Resist the temptation to hide in trivialities. When my kids storm into my room demanding justice, the easy thing is to make overarching rules. No more toys. That's it. If you're going to fight over it, no more toys. I've done that uh, quite often. It's harder to take a second to listen, and it's messy to unwind it, to try and honestly engage. That may seem like a typical parenting issue, but I found it's not much different in the rest of my life. It's hard dealing with people. People do crazy things. People get in crazy messes. People make crazy choices. But love engages that. Imagine if you were in Jesus' place talking to the woman at the well. She's running through men faster than I can run through coffee. And now she's shacking up with her boyfriend. She's a mess. And every time you try and talk to her about it, she tries to bring up some random biblical meme she picked up on Facebook. Like, you know, I saw this one... Guy put quote, you know, was one preacher make this quote. And you're trying to get her to talk about her mess, and she's deflecting. Can you feel that tension? When you know you want to fix the real problem. But Jesus just offered her water. Living water. I would probably go, first of all, you've got to dump the freeloader and learn how to be by yourself a little bit and learn how to be independent and know who you are when you're not with somebody. Like, that's where I go. I go straight to the, let's fix the surface stuff. Jesus goes, you need water. You need living water. That's hard. It takes faith. But that's what Jesus does. He doesn't tell her to leave her man. He doesn't... Tell her to change. He doesn't ask her. He just says, just ask, and I'll give you living water. He offers himself. So I extend that to you. Even if you have to whisper it to yourself, just, you need Jesus. You need living water. Because fixing, fixing all the peripheral stuff, that's not gospel. The gospel doesn't say, well, start by cleaning up your mess. Goodness gracious. The gospel says, come as you are. We'll work on the mess. You just come. So as we go to the table, I'm asking you to have faith to just come. Not just up front to get bread and juice, but to have faith to go, okay, Jesus, here I am. Here I am.
What do you want with me? What? I'm bringing my whole mess. I'm here. Mess and all. I come. Let's go to the table.